Turn to Obadiah. Obadiah, especially turn to chapter 1, if you would. Obadiah. You know, in our society, no one is arrested unless they are being told while they're being, why they're being arrested. I talked to Daniel about this a little bit to make sure this is correct. Because he said it's kind of a little bit touchy, touch and go situation. What you do is handcuff the guy first normally and then say, this is what you're being arrested for. Something like that. He says it's not always that cut and dry, but we, you know, we have to tell suspected criminals as to why they're being charged for a crime. Really can't lawfully be punished for a crime until you've been formally charged with it anyway. And there's certainly been mistakes in our system that have put innocent people behind bars, and that's sad. But nevertheless, if people are going to be arrested, they must be charged with a crime. In Obadiah, the first nine verses, there's a prophecy of judgment against the nation of Edom. The Lord says that he's going to make Edom small among the nations. We started Obadiah last week, and we saw that. He's going to make them insignificant. They've been deceived by their arrogance because they were so puffed up with pride and so overconfident they thought that they had it made. They had this surrounded by this mountain, mountainous fortress where they lived. They lived literally in the midst of all kinds of mountains that towered over them. They were protected by the mountains. They thought they were invincible against attack. And they had the gall to say in verse 3, who will bring me down to earth? And so they said that because they were proud. But the Lord revealed that Edom's allies would break their treaties with them and they would deceive them, and they would entrap them, and ultimately they would defeat them. And, but the Lord doesn't uh, judge at whim. He doesn't judge without giving reasons why he's judged. He doesn't judge just because, he's, because some people think he's cruel. That's not what it's all about. He's got reasons for his judgments. And the reasons that he, ha- that he has are righteous reasons. Or they're good reasons. They're just reasons. And unlike our system of justice, the Lord never makes a mistake in charging people with crimes or with sins. Um, His punishment of individuals, his punishment of nations is always according to truth. And so in verses 10 to 14, the next, next, in fact, our goal tonight is to go through the whole, the rest of this book. In verses 10 to 14, the Lord lists the charges against Edom that caused him to bring this devastating judgment against them. He spells the crimes out, the reasons out one by one. Now, Obadiah really, if you think about it, has a strong tie-in with Genesis 12, 1 to 3. You know, that's where the Lord told Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then he says, whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless. And whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And and the Lord never wavered on that promise. He never revoked that promise. He didn't take it back. And that's why several centuries later, whenever Obadiah was written, he's carrying forth this same promise. The Lord is bringing judgment on Edom because they oppose the people of God. And so this goes back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. They dared to curse whom God had blessed. And so tonight, secondly, we're going to look at the reasons for Edom's judgment, 10 to 14. Verses 1 to 9 were the prophecy of Edom's judgment. Now we're going to look at the reasons for Edom's judgment in verses 10 to 14. The charges against Edom are stated, first of all, in a general way in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Because of violence done to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. And so you have this general... uh, charge leveled against them. You've done violence against Edom. And then you have specific charges in verses 11 to 14. Now, verse 10 is continuing from the previous verse. And it's talking about Edom. Look at verse 9. Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman. That's, uh, that's Edom. 
so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter because of your violence to your brother Jacob. Continuing on with the subject, and that's Edom. He's speaking of the judgment upon Edom. He says, because you've committed violence against your brother Jacob. Now, the word violence, it's not, it's not defined here as to what exactly happened uh, when he says violence. The word is normally used to describe extreme acts of wickedness like murder or rape or bad behavior that took place in the, before the flood that caused the flood. Um, and so you have this violence against uh, Esau, against uh, Jacob. And furthermore, it's against his brother. Esau was Jacob's brother in the beginning here. And so it makes it all, all the worse. So we're going back to the start, starting point. It's not like Edom was resisting a total stranger or committing violence against a total stranger here. It's against his brother Jacob. It's a crime against his brother. As a result of this, two things are going to happen in verse 11. Number one, it says you're going to be covered with shame. Edom was so full of pride, so arrogant, and now they're going to go down, they're going to be covered with shame. The nation that thought they couldn't be brought down is going to be overwhelmed with absolute disgrace. And then second, the second result, you're, you're going to be cut off forever. Edom would cease to exist as a nation. That's how serious this judgment was. They would cease to exist as a nation. Now, nobody knows the exact timing, historically, of when that took place. It's a as I said last week, it's a debate between people as to when it happened. I will tell you this. We do know this. In the 4th century B.C., there was a group of people called the Nabataeans. And they forced the Edomites to leave their land. They lived in the south, the southern part of, uh, you know, under the Dead Sea. They were forced to leave that land and go up a little bit into the southern part of Israel, a place they called Idumea. Idumea. Now, can you tell me who an Idum a famous Idumean was? since we're on the subject of Edom these days, Sunday morning and Sunday night, famous as you may in the, in, the, in the Gospels was none other than Herod the Great. I'm talking about the Herod in Matthew chapter 2 right now. He was an Idumean, and ultimately, in other words, he was, an, he was an Edomite. And so Herod the Great was the one who tried to have Christ killed as a baby in Matthew chapter 2. So a descendant of Esau tried to kill Christ because he thought that it was a, he was a rival to the, the kingly rule of Herod. Well, ultimately, ultimately the Idumeans, or who were the Edomites, they rebelled against the Roman Empire in the first century. And they were defeated by the Roman general Titus in 70 A.D. when he came and sacked Jerusalem. Where were they defeated at? They were defeated in Jerusalem, of all places, Idumea was, destroyed by Rome. So that was the end of the Edomites officially as a nation. Uh, but I, I will tell you this, though. Because I had a question. Well, how do they come back in, his, in, in the future day if they were destroyed then? So I, what else could I do? I wrote Irv Buzinitz, who used to teach, be a teacher for Mike Sprott, <laughs> who is, is a man who studies the minor prophets. And I said, hey, what's going on, Irv? <laughs> I don't understand how if uh, they're wiped out in the first century, they're going to be coming back to haunt us in the future. <laughs> And he, he says he thinks that the descendants of Esau, back and forth a couple, this is a very interesting week on, on that part of it, by the way. Um, by the way, he's writing a book on the minor prophets, on how to preach the minor prophets, I found out. I don't know when that's going to be written or come out even. But he thinks that the descendants of Edom are li living in the area of Edom right now, what used to be, or Transjordan, in other words, the other side of the river of Jordan, not the promised land side. He thinks they're living there now, that's his thought, and that they're not a nation, but there's individuals living there, people living there that that will be the descendants that one day will, will be in the future. We'll see that in verses 15 and 21. All right. Now, what are the specific crimes against 
against Edom that, or against Israel that Edom committed. What did they do against Israel? First of all, Edom failed to intervene on Judah's behalf. Verse 11, they failed to intervene on Judah's behalf when they had the opportunity. Um, now, in verses 11 to 14, you're going to notice the phrase, the day. Again and again, mentioned 10 times. Look at verse 11. It says there, on the day. In verse 12, it is called your brother's day. It's also called the day of his misfortune. In the same verse, it is the day of their destruction and the day of their distress. In verse 13, it's the day of Judah's disaster. The phrase is repeated three times in 13, verse 13 alone. In verse 14, it's called the day of their distress. It's a time of great suffering and misery for Judah. That day, that time period was a great time of suffering for them. There's no historical framework mentioned here. We don't know when it took place. Obadiah talks about strength. Look at verse 11. Let's read verse 11 and 14. On that day you stood aloof. On that day, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives, fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. So you have this time period of distress and misery Israel went through. And the strangers and foreigners in verse 11 are not identified. We don't, it just says strangers and foreigners are carrying off the wealth of Israel, of, Ju- of Jerusalem. They're attacking. Maybe it was Babylon. That's the best guess I, I can think of, but there's debates about that. So whoever they were, they went after the wealth of Judah. They went after it. The foreigners cast lots for Jerusalem. In other words, they divided the spoil among themselves. They're capturing Jerusalem. They're going after Jerusalem. Well, while this was going on, this enemy, whoever was attacking Jerusalem, what was Edom doing? Edom, the brother of Jacob, doing all this time. What were they doing? While the enemy was plundering Jerusalem, they were standing aloof, it says. They, verse 11, on that day you stood aloof. They were standing, waiting around like vultures to see what they could get for themselves out of the invasion after the enemy had plundered Israel. They did absolutely nothing to help their brother Israel. Obadiah says about Edom, you too, it says in verse 11, the last phrase, you too were as one of them. You were just like the guys invading Jerusalem. You're no better than they were. You might as well have been an out-and-out enemy. You're supposed to be the brother of Israel. You're no better than the foreigners invading them. You didn't even lift a finger to help. You did nothing to intervene at all, and you should have. You know, when you when you think of that, you, I couldn't help but think of Luke chapter 10 where... Um, the guy is, you know, beaten up on his way to Jericho, and he's left for half dead on the road, and he's in desperate straits, and a priest comes by, and he looks at him, and then he passes by on the other side. And then the Levite comes by and looks at him and passes by on the other side. But it took a foreigner, a Samaritan, to stop and help this guy out with, and show compassion on the guy and make sure he was taken care of. I thought of that when I thought of this passage. Then I thought of James 2 where... It says you got this brother or sister who's in need of clothing, and they're poorly dressed, and they have, they're lacking in daily food, and somebody says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. I thought of that too, that they're, and, but yet nobody intervened in either situation, even though these people needed help. 
They didn't give them things. And James says, you didn't give them things needed for their body. And so James says, what good is that? What good is that kind of, kind of faith? You didn't do anything to back it up. It's a dead faith that has that response. The point is, we can never stand idly by while our brothers and sisters in Christ are hurting, while they have problems. Why We're called upon to be people of compassion, aren't we? And that's what Edom was supposed to do, show compassion upon Jacob, but they didn't do it. Our Lord was filled with compassion. We see him going to people. We see him as he looked over Jerusalem and saying, how often I would have gathered you together, just like a hen does her chicks under its wings, but you wouldn't do it. But that's, that's how the Lord felt about them. We see the Lord acting with compassion upon Peter when he denied Christ three times and he treated him so, with such great compassion. We would have kicked him out of the church probably. That's not what the Lord did. And so he, looks, he, he has this compassion for people. God's people are called to intervene in, in the lives of people who are troubled. Edom failed to intervene on Judah's, Judah's behalf. And we don't want to be like them. When we see someone in need, we go to their aid. So they did that. Well, Edom also took pleasure in verse 12. This is the next crime. Edom took pleasure in Judah's defeat. This is the next charge against them. They took pleasure in Judah's defeat. Verse 12, do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over it. In fact, there's eight prohibitions, by the way, listed in the rest of these verses all the way to verse 14. See where it says do not? It says it eight times in 12 to 14. Do not gloat. Do not rejoice. Do not boast. Do not enter the gate of my people. Do not gloat over their calamity. Uh, their calamity. Do not loot their wealth. Do not stand at the fork of the road. Do not imprison their survivors. Again and again, prohibited from doing all these things, and yet they did them anyway. And that's why they're being judged. First of all, they gloated over the day of their brother's misfortune. In other words, that has the idea of looking in triumph at the defeat of your fallen enemies. You're feasting your eyes on their misfortune. You're saying, oh, yeah, we got them now. I'm glad they're down and they're hurting. They were happy because Israel was being defeated. That's what Edom did. And then he says, don't rejoice over them. They were celebrating the downfall of Judah. They were happy about it. The last prohibition in verse 12, do not boast in the day of their distress. By the way, the literal translation of that phrase is don't make your mouth great. Don't make, make your mouth great. In other words, the words they spoke showed they were superior. They thought they were superior to Israel. They thought they were better than Israel, better than Judah, and so they were filled with boasting. Proverbs 2.17 says, do not rejoice. I'm not sure if that's the right reference now. It says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. We should never take pleasure in the downfall of others. That happens. You ever done that? Your person you want to see go down at the job or wherever, they have a problem and you're like, yeah, he deserved that. You're kind of happy inside? We're not supposed to be like that. So Edom went from a passive state of doing nothing at all to help, standing aloof, not intervening when they should have, to being actively glad when... Judah fell, and they rejoiced over it. That was their second crime. And the third reason that God judged, would judge Edom was because Edom took advantage of Judah's wealth. In verse 13, Edom took advantage of Judah's wealth. It says, do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their disaster. Don't gloat over their calamity. Don't loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Edom takes the next logical step in their downward path to evil here they decide to the, the, the city's vulnerable the enemies attack they the gates open they decide to go through the gate and because there's this vulnerability is there they go in and they take which is not 
that which is not theirs. They, they loot their wealth. You know, whenever you have a town that's been torn apart by military action somewhere in the world or maybe uh, a flood or some kind of natural disaster and you have chaos everywhere, what happens in that town? We can inevitably predict this, right? People start looting, right? They start, oh, I've seen it. I've seen it in, on the news reports and so on that here's people going around stealing what they can and what they want because there's nobody guarding the place. Uh, there's nobody guarding their property. You have chaos everywhere because of a natural disaster or whatever. And so people, what do they do? They, 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 wanna, they want things and they go out and they say, hey, I'll just go in that guy's house and take it. Nobody's there. And so they begin to loot. And that's what Edom did. They looted whatever they can find from Israel. So they're no better than the original attackers that would invade. They did the same thing. Did you notice at the beginning of verse 13 what God calls the people? He says, do not enter the gate of my people, Israel, my people. So Edom is not just taking advantage of, an, of anybody. They're taking advantage of God's people. So now they have God to answer to because he says, whoever blesses my people are going to be blessed. Whoever curses them are going to be cursed. They took advantage of, Edom, of Judah's wealth. And then, fourthly, Edom pre- pre- prevented Judah's escape. Verse 14, they prevented Judah's escape. It says, do not stand at the fork of the road. To cut down their fugitives, do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. On top of everything else, as Israelites were trying to escape from Jerusalem to get away from the enemy, certain people were trying to escape that had the opportunity to do so, Edom would, lo- would position themselves at strategic points, like mountain passes or forks in the road or whatever, and wherever they thought Israelites would try to escape, and they would guard any possible escape routes to try to intercept them. And, to, and, and if, in fact, in verse 14 where it says to cut down their fugitives means probably to intercept, to intercept the fugitives. And then they would have them in prison. Probably they'd turn them over to the enemy so they could be in prison. Probably in cahoots with the enemy. So they're preventing the escape of Judah. You can see there, everything they can try to do to try to aggravate, to try to assault, to try to harm and hurt Israel in any way, the so-called brother of Israel is doing it. You can see why the Lord's so angry in the first nine verses of Obadiah. You can see why he's pouring out his judgment on them because the punishment fit the, fits the crime, right? They deserve it. God takes up for his people at, at this point. You know, at times he had to judge his own people for their sins, but he always remembered his promise to Abraham, even in the midst of all of his dealings with his own people as they went astray again and again. He always remembered his promises to Abram where it says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And those people who would try to curse Israel are doing, are getting way over their head, and they will pay the price. So the Lord righteously judged Edom for their crimes against Israel. That brings us to the last section of the book, and the most difficult, of course, the day of the Lord, verses 15 to 21, the day of the Lord. I consider it a difficult. I consider anything in eschatology to be difficult personally. <laughs> It's an interesting uh, study. Verse 15, let's read this section here first. Verse 15, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done it, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. Back, But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble, 
and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead, and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Yes, it would be better to have a map tonight. I don't have one, sorry. Verse 15, he continues on with the subject. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. People like to talk about having their day in court. I remember it was in a couple of court cases. And the lawyer said, everybody gets their day in court. And that's true. Those who have been accused of breaking the law want to prove their innocence, and so they look for their day in court. They want their day of justice, right? They want to prove they're innocent. But the Lord will also have his day as well one day in the future, and it will be a day of justice, absolute justice. Of course, we're not talking, when we talk about the day of the Lord, we're not talking about a 24-hour day. There's different, you know, uh, ways to... Look at the word day in the Bible. We, when we're, we're in Genesis 1, we see and know, and I don't know why anybody doesn't know this without a doubt, that it's a 24-hour literal day as we go through Genesis and Exodus and we see how it works that way. 26 days of work, right? 24-hour days. I'm not working for a 1,000 years a day, right? Some people probably feel like they are. You know, but it's 24 hours in one day. Um, but there's times where the Bible talks about a certain day when it refers to a long period of time, and this is the case, the day of the Lord, in the future, a period of time. It's a time when the Lord will administer true justice to the world. In the Old Testament, it's called the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, understand this about this, can refer to a future event, but also can refer to any day in history that God judged the nation. It can refer to historical days as well. Our passage here is pointing to a future day of the Lord. It's pointing to that. But understand this, too. The future day of the Lord is always tied to something that happened in history. That's very important. Obadiah is an example of that. God judged Edom in history, but the future day of the Lord is tied in with this history in Obadiah. It's it's the same book we're talking about here, Obadiah and Edom. And then he continues on with the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord is a yet future time when God will supernaturally intervene in the world... And there are three concepts to remember about the day of the Lord. Hang with me through 15 or 21, okay? Number one, it will be a time of judgment for sinners and a time of blessing for believers. God will judge sinners. It's going to be that day of justice. God is going to reward and bless believers. Number two, another concept of the day of the Lord has special significance for Israel, at least believing Israel. Believing Israel is going to be blessed during that time period, yet future. And number three, it's imminent. Obadiah 15 says, for the day of the Lord, what? Draws near, right? In all the nations, it draws near. Now, that does not necessarily mean chronologically, although the day of judgment in history upon Egypt, Edom was, was near. Chronologically, it was near in their, in their history. But in the future, it's speaking of this impending intervention of God as a time when God will intervene in the world. So there, there's this sense, as you read these ominous words, the day of the Lord draws near. It's a sense of impending doom, of foreboding. And so I see in this term a warning to people who rebel against God. The day of the Lord is drawing near. You better be ready. It's coming. And so he warns people. 
Now, Amos illustrates for that, illustrates this for us in Amos chapter 5. Turn to Amos chapter 5, verse 18. One of you, probably your life, one of your life verses in here somewhere. Amos 5, 18 and 20. In this passage, and I'm sorry, we're going to have to read some of these passages. We'll have to turn to them and read them so you can understand what's going on here. In this passage, there were people that misunderstood what the day of the Lord was all about. Israel, the nation Israel, wanted the Lord to act on their behalf and bring about this day of the Lord. And yet, they misunderstood what it was all about. The Lord was angry with Israel at the time, with their evil. Now look at Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. You want the day of the Lord? For what purpose will be the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. Wow. What would you rather have, the lion or the bear to face? You, you, were, you were running from a lion, now you're running into a bear. Or he goes home and leaves his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. That's not good. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Yeah, it's going to be a time of judgment for those who are evil. Time of judgment for those who are wicked. So don't look for the day of the Lord if you're not honoring God and you're rebelling against him. That's not a thing you want to be doing. Let me quote Irv Buzenitz again on something. He gives a really good explanation of this day of the Lord this idea of the chronology. He says this, from a chronological point of view, the day of the Lord was employed by the prophets first to depict events which were fulfilled shortly after they were predicted. Edom was promised they'd be judged in history. They were shortly after that sometime. Okay? And so it was, it was used first to depict events which were fulfilled shortly after they were predicted, events where God intervened in the affairs of mankind, like in Edom. And secondly, to depict the more distant future day of, the, of Yahweh, day of the Lord, including both tribulation and the millennial period. So you can see that it happens during that time, in future time, the time of the tribulation and the millennium. Listen to this phrase. The historic fulfillment became illustrative of the future event. The historic fulfillment that happened to Edom became illustrative of the future event yet to happen. So the day of the Lord can refer to can refer to a historical time of judgment on a given nation in the Bible and yet a future time of judgment on all nations. All right, so what does the day of the Lord mean for the nations? Verse, verses 15 to 21 are divided into two sections, verses 15 and 16, what the day of the Lord means for the nations, and 17 and 21, what the day of the Lord means for Israel. What does it mean for the nations, verses 15 and 16? Look at verse 15, day of the Lord draws near on where? On who? On all the nations, right? That's why it never happened in history, this day of the Lord we're talking about right here. coming yeah, Because it's going to happen on all the nations. hasn't happened yet on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. So it's, going to, it's talking about Edom. It's been talking about Edom all this time. It's been ill-treating Israel. Now it expands to all the nations. The judgment on Edom illustrates the judgment coming on all the nations one day. Edom becomes representative of all the nations throughout history that are opposed to God, that are rebelling against God and his people. So judgment is no longer solely focused only on Edom, but also all the nations. Joel 3 talks about that. The day of the Lord is one where God will enter into judgment with all the nations. Joel 3 is a, the book of Joel is a classic on the day of the Lord. And then it goes on to say here, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. 
Now, in the context preceding this, what Edom had done to Israel would backfire on them, and they would be judged. That would be done to them. Israel looted Edom looted Israel's wealth, and the same would happen to them. Edom committed violence against Israel, and so they would be slaughtered. Verse nine. They gloated over Israel's demise, and so the Lord would bring them down. Right? They treated Israel in a cruel manner, and so they would be treated in a cruel manner, just like. Another proverb, Proverbs 26, 27, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that's right. <laughs> Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. So if you seek the harm of another person, you can be pretty sure the same thing is going to happen to you. It's the law of sowing and reaping. Genesis or Galatians chapter 6, don't be deceived, God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The dealings of the wicked, it says in Obadiah, will return on their own head. So, you know, you commit the crime, you do the time, right? That's how it works. And it did, it did for Edom, it will for all the nations. Now, verse 16 is somewhat difficult to interpret, or the whole passage actually is. <laughs> um, Obadiah uses a word picture here, a picture of drinking. Uh, he talks about drinking. He says, you drank, all the nations will drink, they will drink and swallow. Why is he talking about drinking? He's referring to drinking from the cup of God's wrath. It's, a, it's a, a word picture used often in the Old Testament, drinking from the cup of God's wrath. Uh, for example, Jeremiah 25, 15, and 16 talk about this. It says there, For thus the Lord God of Israel says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it, Jeremiah. They, they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So we're talking about drinking of the cup of the wrath of God. Now it talks about the holy mountain in verse 16, which is Zion, Mount Zion or Jerusalem. Judah drank of the wine of the wrath of God for a while. He's saying, it says here, just as you drank, by the way, that you in verse 16 is now plural and not singular anymore as it was in verse 15. Just as you, I believe, he's saying Judah drank for a while on my holy mountain. You drank of the wrath of God for a while. The nations will, will drink from it continually, it goes on to say. They're going to drink it from it continually. They're going to swallow it. You were, you were judged for a while. The nations are going to be judged seriously. They're going to be forced to gulp down the wrath of God literally. Wave after wave of punishment will come after them. They're going to be judged by God. They're going to become as if they never existed. They're going to cease to exist as nations because the Lord will make them insignificant just like he made Edom insignificant. That's what it means for the nations that are opposed to God, rebel against God, they're going to be judged severely. What does it mean for Israel? In verses 17 and 21. Look at verse 17. But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Uh, again, Mount Zion, the mountain on which Jerusalem, Israel's capital, is built. So we're, talking, we're not talking about the nations anymore. Now we're talking about Israel, right? or more properly, the elect remnant of Israel as we look through the whole Old Testament of this subject. And so, whereas the wrath of God is, was poured out in general on the nations now, for believing, the believing remnant of Israel, there's going to be a time of unprecedented blessing in, in the day of the Lord that comes in the future. The word escape, hang with me here, in verse 17, the word escape is often used to describe God's preservation of a remnant in Israel. A remnant. Let me read to you Isaiah 37, verses 31 and 32. It says there, Isaiah 37, 31, The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, 
Out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So you have this remnant that takes that, that escapes. Now, I, I don't understand everything there is to know about this, um, but they're being delivered by God in this time period. You remember back in verse 14 that Edom tried to cut off the, the, the escapees that were trying to escape out of Jerusalem. They tried to cut them off. They tried to block their path. They tried to turn them over to the enemy. Well, that, that's going to be reversed in the day of the Lord. Now Edom's going to suffer. Now the nations are going to suffer. But the Lord is going to protect his people and provide a way of escape. Things are going to be just the opposite in the day of the Lord as they were in history. God's going to be the defense of believing Israel. And it goes on to say it will be holy. Mount Zion's going to be holy because why? The Lord's there, right? Because the Lord's there. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Now the house of Jacob is mentioned again, interestingly enough, to show the reverse of fortunes between Jacob and Esau. We're always going back to Jacob and Esau here. Those two brothers, that's where it all started at. And now the fortunes are reversed. In verse 13, Edom had looted Jacob's wealth in the day of the Lord, yet future. Jacob will possess what was originally given to her by God, the promised land. That's what he's talking about when he says going to possess their possessions. The word possess and possessions are associated with Israel's conquest of the promised land, as you read through the Old Testament. Um, the Lord dispossessed the nations, the enemies of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, or out of the land of Canaan, rather. And, and, then, and then even though Israel was disobedient, Israel didn't do everything the way God wanted them to. We saw what happened in the book of Judges. But eventually they possessed the land of Canaan. And then they forfeited their land due to their idolatry. And Babylon came in, Assyria came in, took them out, deported them to those nations. But in the future day, the millennial period, they're going to possess the promised land in its fullness. They're going to get that promise to possess it. And this is the big debate in eschatology, I know. But this is what it's saying. And we're going to see that in greater detail in verses 19 and 20. Now look at verse 18. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as a stubble. They will set them on fire and consume them. So there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Now, there are three houses mentioned in this verse, verse 18. The house of Jacob, the house of Joseph, and the house of Esau. Let's deal with the first two houses, Jacob and Joseph. We've been talking about Jacob all this time. Now, all of a sudden, we've got the house of Joseph thrown in. You're reading your Bible, right? You're going through your Bible, and you're like, what's the house of Joseph? <laughs> I didn't even know what the house of Jacob was. <laughs> now we got the house of Joseph here and the house of Esau. So you're probably wondering, what's all that about? Well, the best way to understand this house of jo Joseph, house of Jacob business is to go to Ezekiel 37 with me, if you will. Turn to Ezekiel 37. And we'll have to read this together, okay? There is the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. First, the regather, which is talking about the regathering of Israel. And then you have an object lesson in verses 15 to 23 in Ezekiel 37. So look at Ezekiel 37, 15, and let's think about these two houses. Ezekiel 37, 15, the word of the Lord came again to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Um, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, right? And so you, you have this. In verse 17, then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, that they may become a one in your hand. When the sons of, of your people, Israel, uh, when the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these sticks? 
say to them, this, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is, here's the interpretation, in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions. It's the northern tribes of Israel in the divided kingdom. And I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and will make one stick, and they will be one in my hand. They're going to be reunited. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations. This is future. Where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land and on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols, with their detestable things, with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. And so you have these two tribes, the northern kingdom represented by the house of Joseph, the southern kingdom represented by the house of Jacob. And during the time of the day, in the future kingdom of Israel, in the future day of the Lord, the kingdom of Israel will be united. One king will rule over them. And who is that king? Ezekiel 37, 24, my servant David will be the king over them. They will have one shepherd. David, the descendant of David is Jesus, is talking about the Messiah ultimately. The Messiah is going to be the king. And so you have those houses I mentioned. And then you have in Obadiah, in Obadiah 18, the house of Esau, and that, of course, is Edom. Now, the, in, in Obadiah 18, the house of Joseph and the house of Jacob are likened to a, fa- a fire and a flame. And the house of Esau is likened to a stubble, which is highly flammable. The fire and the flame are going to burn the highly flammable su- substance, is the, is the word picture. In other words, Jacob and Joseph are going to destroy Esau. Is what, the, is what he's getting at. They're going to destroy them in the future day. In fact, so much so, it says in verse 18, there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. In history, they cease to exist as a nation, but obviously a remnant of some kind remain. In the future day of the Lord, there will be no survivors at all. God's judgment on the nation is going to be just. Will that really happen? Look at verse, the end of verse 18. For the Lord has spoken... After all this, after he says all this, he says, it's almost as if someone says, is that going to happen? He says, yeah, for the Lord has spoken. We have God's word on it. There will be no survivors of the house of Esau left in the day of the Lord, for the Lord has spoken. Now look at verses 19 and 20. We won't go through all the... I guess we won't read those again, but it says that those in the Negev, it talks about those in the Negev, the Shvelah, yes, pronounced Shvelah, the, uh, in Ephraim, Benjamin talks about Zarephath, Sepharad, and all these places. What's he talking about here? He's saying that Israel will one day possess the land of the promised land held by David and Solomon, the greatest extension of their kingdom in history. They're going to want, again, inherit that promised land from all directions, north, south, east, west. west. Negev is a desert area in the south. They're going to possess that. They're going to, in fact, Negev is going to possess ancient Edom. That's kind of another slam against Edom right there, adding insult to injury. The Shvelah is an area, uh, the western foothills near the Mediterranean Sea goes west. And they're going to possess something further west on the coast, and that's Philistine territory. They're going to possess the western part of Israel. And then you have Ephraim, which was central Israel. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom at that time. And they're going to possess central Israel. Benjamin was on the eastern part of Israel. And, And Gilead was on the other side of the Jordan River. Remember the tribes 
uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh that was on the other side of Jordan, Benjamin is going to possess that territory, in other words, the eastern section. Verse 20 talks about Zarephath. That's way up north in ancient Phoenicia, past the promised land a little bit. They're even to go that far, exiles or probably the escapees in verse 17 are going to go that far to possess the land. So far, nobody knows where that is even. They can't, they can't determine where it is. So what's he, what is Obadiah saying by making reference to all this geography? He's saying that one day Israel will get their land back, north, south, east, west, central, all of it. They're going to inherit the promised land. The land promise given to them is going to be literally fulfilled in the future kingdom, in the future day of the Lord. Now look at verse 21. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Verse 21. You think of when you see the word deliverers there, you remember anything about that? How about judges? The judges that were raised up, the deliverers, right? It's going to be like that again. They're going to deliver, help deliver Israel from their enemies in the, in, the, in, the day, in the coming day of the Lord. Those deliverers are going to do for Israel what they did back in the past. And they're going to be used by God to judge the nations, to help judge the nations. talks about the mountain of Esau here. They're going to ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, probably a term all-inclusive for all nations now, expanding from Esau to all nations, although another slam on Esau again. And so the deliverers are going to judge the nations. Now, this is the information we have that Obadiah has given us. And I'm sure if you're me, like me, you have further questions, right? Probably a million questions. I have a million questions. I ask Irv Boozen some of those questions and I'm thinking, man, I wish I could sit down and talk to him for a long time and ask him a bunch more questions. So I've got questions. But you know what? I found out that the Lord has not sought to fully satisfy our curiosity about the future and his word. He didn't write his word to fully satisfy our curiosity. All of us have questions about the future. All of us have things we don't understand. But the Lord has left it this way for some reason. And maybe it is, so we'll just trust him with the future. We don't understand everything there is. We understand, you know, look, look through the glass darkly, right? The mirror dimly. And we see what we see here, and we try to figure it out as best we can, but we don't understand everything because things in eschatology are beyond our understanding ultimately. We do the best we can. But we entrust to the Lord what we cannot understand, right? We trust the Lord with that. Now, there's a concluding thought in Obadiah. The last phrase of verse 21, it says, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. That's a great thought. Edom thought they had it all, didn't they? They, thought, they said in verse 3, who will bring me down to earth? They thought they had everything. They thought they had a, t a kingdom that could not be taken. But they were proven wrong. Their kingdom, kingdom crumbled. Their kingdom was taken from them. Even with this mountain fortress they lived in. It reminded me of the song... A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. He says at the end of one verse, his kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. You know, in Zechariah 14.9, it says this, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, that future day, the Lord will be the only one, the only king. Now, whatever I don't understand about eschatology, which is much, I do know one thing, the Lord will reign over all. He's going to reign over all things, over all people. And I do know that he will fulfill his plan, however he works it out. People want to argue all the time about these things, but however he works it out, he's going to fulfill his plan. Let me close with the words of Revelation 11.15. We'll stop with this. And you can ask any questions to Irv Buzenitz at tms.edu.
Revelation 11:15 it says the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and that's good enough for me let's pray Lord do you thank you for your word and I pray that we'll, you will give us an understanding of it but I pray that we will trust you with what we don't know about the future we'll trust you with our uh, in fact for that matter we pray we'll trust you with our futures here and that and, and even tomorrow and the things that lie ahead of us the things that we that we're uh, concerned about right now maybe even worried about we pray we'll trust you with all these things and know that you'll you will help us to be the people we should be and we just praise in christ's name amen